You're listening to Mapping Online Hate in Canada, hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. In this series, we will be interviewing experts and looking into the relationship between online hate and offline violence. Hello, this is Kyle Matthews of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We're here for another interesting interview about online hate. Uh, we have with us Chris Tuckwood, who is the founder and executive director of the Sentinel Project. Chris, uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to. So Chris, I'd like to start off with, you came across uh, the radar of my institute a long time ago, but, but I remember reading in Wired Magazine, a mention about this interesting project called HateBase that you launched. I'm wondering, I know that's evolved over the years, but but maybe let's start off, tell us, tell us what is unique about your HateBase project in confronting online hate? Sure, well, the idea behind HateBase is, I guess if we back up in terms of how it's ideally to be used, is to get a better idea of what online hate is actually uh, out there, basically. So it's a monitoring tool predominantly. Uh, What we've done is build a multilingual lexicon of keywords that we, you know, have together with people that have the relevant contextual uh, knowledge that we've identified as being indicators of likely hate speech. Uh, and then some contextual rules around that. Uh, so right now, it's we've got several thousand terms that we monitor for across over 90 languages. And the monitoring itself is another unique aspect of it because it's it's automated. So I think you know a lot of people could imagine that one of the issues with online hate speech, and there are there are many, but one of the challenges is just the volume. Uh, when you have billions of people using you know, Facebook and Twitter and many other platforms, um, you need to build some kind of automation in to help uh, basically keep an eye on that and quantify it. So Chris, one of my, you semi-answered my next question, but I was gonna ask like, what are the ethical and technical challenges with regards to removing hate speech from social media platforms? You mentioned one of the technical challenges is just the vast amount of data and that you need to have some automated response. Um, is that the only technical challenge? And, and also, what are the ethical challenges about freedom of expression, freedom of speech? Well, those are really good questions. And it's, uh, I mean, it's hard to think of a, a concise answer to that because there are, are numerous issues here. Technically speaking, if we separate, I would say monitoring from then whatever the, the countermeasure is, whether that's you know removing content or, or what have you, just looking at monitoring, like I mentioned, you know, um, having good linguistic coverage is difficult. And that includes not just language in terms of, you know, overall languages, but when you're talking about, for example, multi, multinational or international languages like English, Arabic, Spanish, etc. cetera, uh, there's a lot of nuance. Something that constitutes hate speech or, or a hateful term in, you know, Libya might not be relevant in Lebanon. Uh, um, you know, you could think of probably some examples uh, between, you know, North America and the UK, for example, of things that are offensive in one place in English and not offensive in the other. Uh, so that's that's one issue and, and getting really, you know, even more local with that sort of contextualization. Technically also, technically speaking, uh, different platforms are difficult to monitor. So I'm thinking here, you know, in terms of as an outsider monitoring a platform versus something like Facebook monitoring itself. Uh, Twitter is relatively easy to monitor because it's very open, uh, you know, in in terms of our ability to to see what people are saying. But Facebook is a very closed platform. So to try and automate monitoring on that without 
a lot of human intervention is very difficult. Uh, then I would say, you know, if we get more into the the ethical side of things, you mentioned freedom of speech and freedom of expression, which definitely come up a lot in this topic or in this realm. And that's a, that's a complicated, you know, issue in and of itself. Uh, when it comes to what the platforms are, are doing, a, a lot of people make the argument that if they do censor content on their platforms, it doesn't really constitute a violation of freedom of speech because those aren't, they're not a government doing it for one thing. And, you know, people who use Facebook, for example, are using essentially the the, prop, the property of a private sector organization, which has, like any business, has the, the right to regulate what happens within its, its premises, which just happens to not be physical premises here. But so, I mean, there's a whole question there about whether or not that's that's right or wrong. I would say that from from our view, it's the question is whether or not that that's effective. I think obviously there are some things that you can make a, a both a practical and an ethical argument that they need to be, you know, content that needs to be removed. Anything that certainly, I think we can certainly say anything that incites violence, for example, or tries to coordinate violence or what have you, obviously needs to be dealt with. But something that we're often concerned about when it comes to simply censoring everything that might be uh, hateful um, or, you know, offensive or what have you, is that that in and of itself can have a polarizing effect. Uh, and especially, you know, if you have people who are also in the sort of conspiracy theory realm, uh, which often has an overlap with people who are prone to engaging in hate speech and that kind of thing. Uh, if they suddenly start to see, you know, their content uh, just being deleted by whether it's Facebook or the government or whatever they think the overarching power is, that can actually kind of reinforce a lot of their their beliefs. So I'll kind of, I'll leave it at that without going on. Um, but basically, I would say that if you know, when we think about our end goal of trying to create more, uh, le let's just call it a less hateful society, uh, censorship is not necessarily always the, the right way to achieve that. That's very interesting. I, and I particularly like your comment about the difference between looking at who's inciting violence or planning violence, as opposed to um, what some people might find offensive, which is um, sometimes entirely something different. So, so I, I thank you for bringing that up. That's something that I've been noticing in a lot of this work that, that we need to focus on. So Chris, one interesting thing um, that I've noticed is that, so putting hate base to the side, the Sentinel project in general, I mean, you guys began doing a lot of interesting work in conflict zones in Africa and Asia, looking at um, you know false information and so forth. And you've done some really interesting work in that space. I'm wondering from your experience working in conflict zones outside, like overseas, what are some of the lessons that could be learned that might be applicable to North America or Canada? One big one that, that comes to mind that comes out of just uh, kind of your description there of what we do, and, and also I think a little bit of what I mentioned uh, in my previous comments, is that we've seen in other places that there's not always a, a stark divide between misinformation and hate speech. Uh, and I think in, in North America, uh, and in Europe, we tend to, when we're talking about these issues, we tend to think of them as being discrete issues. So, you know, there, there's the category of hate speech, and then there's the category of misinformation, uh, and we treat those differently. But really, you know, in, in our view, if you were to make a Venn diagram of those two things, there would be a lot of overlap in the middle. And I think what we need to do more of um, you know, we meaning as a society, whether it's government, NGOs, et cetera, 
uh, is to understand the relationship between those two things. Um, our, you know, a, a metaphor, I guess, uh, that we, we kind of use sometimes or, or an analogy is that hate speech loads the gun, but misinformation often pulls the trigger. Uh, and what we mean by that is that when it comes to things like, like violence or other negative outcomes, uh, people don't necessarily just spontaneously decide one day to uh, take up arms against, you know, their neighbors or an opposing group or what have you because of general sort of, you know, what I'll call background hostility and pe things that people are saying. But where that does become dangerous then is when, let's say, a rumor also comes around that kind of aligns with a lot of the hostility that already exists. So, you know, if there's a rumor about uh, a particular threat from a particular community, uh, then that, and you know, that comes into an environment where there's already a lot of hate speech against that particular community, then that makes it all the more likely for people to, uh, again, you know, move over from just talking into some kind of violent action. And, uh, you know, I think that's an area where we've seen examples even in the U.S. with, uh, you know, in a, a few cases where there have been uh, violent incidents because of people who believed in conspiracy theories uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, like some anti-Semitic uh, incidents that have happened. I forget, unfortunately, the name of the specific uh, the synagogue where there was a shooting, I think, last year or the year before. But, you know, the, the shooter, if I'm not mistaken, believed that uh, in this conspiracy theory that, that Jewish people were essentially uh, trying to encourage non-white immigration into the U.S. and all this sort of thing. You know, is that is that hate speech? Is that misinformation? I feel like there are elements kind of, of both in there. But I, I suspect that that individual wouldn't have necessarily gone and taken that violent action purely just as a result of, of hate speech with all, without also having this sort of very warped um, idea about things that Jews were actually allegedly doing uh, that were harmful to society as he saw it. So hopefully that kind of makes sense, the, the relationship that I'm trying to describe there. I think that's something basically that we just need to understand a lot better and pay more attention to. I don't think that if people were, let's say, sitting around in an Orma village or a Pacomo village, uh, just sort of talking about their hostility towards another group, um, simply saying things like, you know, hearing someone say something like, I hate Ormas or Pocomos or thieves or what have you, wouldn't necessarily be enough to prompt somebody or a whole group of people to take up arms. But it was, what we saw was the things that really brought, really seemed to increase tensions were when people would hear specifically that, you know, whatever, whatever tribe X is planning to attack us tomorrow, or they have received an arms shipment, or they have poisoned our water supply and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's those um, those particular kind of issues or, or units of misinformation, we'll say, that really have the potential to be the triggers. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, Chris, and, and I, I like your comment that hate speech loads the gun, but misinformation very often pulls the trigger. I think, um, I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes misinformation interacts with hate speech and, and, and creates um, narratives that makes people commit violent acts against people. And, and we're seeing that take place online. So, so I think that's a very, very important point. Thank you. Chris, getting back to the Canadian space, um, you know, we have a small number of NGOs, think tanks, people working on this issue. And I'm wondering in your view, in, in what areas could Canadian NGOs, think tanks and tech companies work more closely together? Because I, I still feel there's a, there's a, 
you know, a bit of a, a silo culture taking place. Uh, how do you think all these three communities could, could better collaborate? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. I, I think something I can say for sure from the side of the, the companies, tech companies, is greater transparency. Obviously, they have a lot of reasons why they uh, don't necessarily want to open up their data sets completely and that sort of thing. But I think in as much as they're interested in addressing this problem and do recognize that there's some expertise existing, you know, among think tanks or, or NGOs that they don't have within those companies. And I think they need to be more open and let others look at, you know, basically what they're dealing with in terms of their content. Again, I, I understand why there are various reasons why they're very reluctant uh, to do that. Uh, but I really do think that that openness and uh, information sharing and, and collaboration is what's what's really lacking. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, another area maybe that could be beneficial, and this doesn't just apply to Canada, but really around the world, is uh, that there needs to be a better understanding. Uh, and then, you know, a corollary of that is greater co uh, collaboration in terms of understanding how the, the online world relates to uh, the real world, so to speak. Um, so, you know, is just addressing purely online content uh, enough in terms of um, dealing with, you know, the issue of hate speech, let's say? That's, a, that's an open question, but I think if these companies, especially if they're paying attention to things happening in, uh, in you know, I'll say hotspots around the world, they need to also establish for themselves a better understanding of what are the dynamics on the ground. Uh, you know, Facebook in, whether it's in Canada or in South Sudan, uh, it's not the entire world. The things that people read online and discuss online might very well influence how they operate uh, offline uh, and how they relate to their neighbors or other, you know, groups of people or what have you. Uh, but I don't think that we necessarily have a, a strong understanding of that uh, right now. So that's an area where probably think tanks and NGOs could really help out the, the tech companies. Well, interesting. Um, so second last question before I let you go, Chris. Uh, sure. At present, for NGOs that are working on these issues in Canada or internationally, is it your sense that, that foundations and governments are putting enough resources and in investing in NGOs to do this work? Is it sufficient? Are we having a meaningful impact? Or are we, are we kind of, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric by governments, we must fight online hate, but I don't really see the budgets or the money coming to NGOs that want to engage on this. What's your view? Yeah, I, I agree with you that the, the money is not really there. There is the definitely the rhetoric. Um, and this, this applies to governments as well as, you know, foundations or even private sector companies that I think whenever there's something, as happens with so many issues uh, in life, um, that when there's something that comes up that's really receiving a lot of media or public scrutiny, um, then suddenly everybody pays a lot of attention to that. But as soon as the attention on that issue starts to die down, then, you know, this, the, the support for it, especially financial support, starts to go away. And I think we can, we can think of lots of examples of that kind of thing happening. But, you know, what this kind of work really needs is not just a, a good level of uh, funding and resources for the people working on it, but for that funding to be there on a long-term basis. Uh, Especially when you know a lot of a lot of donors get excited about technology and they hear about things like machine learning and AI and everyone has this kind of idea that oh all you have to do is just you know write the 
correct kind of code and then release that into the wild and then it's problem solved, which is a really simplistic view. Um, and not to say that everybody, you know, on the, the donor side of things thinks that way, but that's been my experience in a lot of cases. And they also perhaps don't necessarily have the best understanding at all times of what these things truly cost in practice. So, you know, if we're really taking this problem seriously, then we wouldn't be asking a lot of fairly small under-resourced organizations to try and address it on a, on a shoestring budget. I can't imagine any other serious societal problem that we would uh, address in that way. So all of that is to say that I don't think the current level of support is sufficient and there's a lot more that can be done. Perhaps the last question I'll ask you, um, Chris, is that what would be your main message to policymakers and engaged citizens who want to be more proactive in confronting online hate? I think, you know, if we get away from the more, we'll say, technical kind of aspects of this, I think something that I find is important, uh, and this applies whether it's to, you know, governments, organizations, individuals, is as much as it might make us uncomfortable sometimes to try and understand the perspective of the people who are spreading things that we might consider to be false or hateful. And this isn't, you know, because we're trying to sympathize with extremists or white supremacists or what have you, but if we really want to address the problem, we need to understand where it's coming from. And hate, you know, hate speech, conspiracy theories, misinformation, et cetera, are, are just ideas, frankly. They can be harmful ideas, but they're also ideas that can be changed. The people who believe these things now don't aren't locked into that. It's not inevitable. They're not, you know, permanently hateful people, uh, which is why, you know, we can see examples of people who used to be white supremacists who, you know, left that lifestyle behind and are now anti-racism campaigners and that sort of thing. Uh, so again, as much as it makes people uncomfortable, and I run into this as well, a lot of people, you know, they, they're really resistant and almost angry if you bring up that idea of trying to understand, you know, why does this person have a particular viewpoint? Why is this person a white supremacist? Why are they, uh, you know, joining, let's say, uh, an Islamic extremist group or what have you? But we're not going to solve this problem and build, you know, less hateful, more peaceful societies by just shouting people down or silencing them or, uh, labeling them as irredeemable or something like that. We really need to make an effort, whether it's at the individual level or at the societal level, to understand where this is coming from and then, you know, try to try to change those minds and frankly just not just shut people up who are saying things that we consider to be harmful. Chris, I really want to thank you for for taking the time to talk to us today about the work of, of Hate Base and the work of the Sentinel Project. Um, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Great. Thanks for having me.